But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, <clears throat> everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts as we study it, as we meditate on these truths. Lord, we love you. We want to learn. We want to grow. And Lord, most importantly this morning, Lord, we want a, a fresh faith, a current faith and trust in you. Work in our hearts today, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a German SS officer in World War II. His machine gun is in hand as he stands over a Hasidic Jew who happens to be digging what will soon be his own grave. When this Jewish man finishes, he lays down his shovel, he stands up straight, he looks his executioner in the eye and he tells him, God is watching what you are doing. Then the German soldier shoots him in the head. This was the truth that Hitler refused to admit. This is what tyrants and madmen throughout history have refused to admit. People deny the truth that God is watching them. Yet this is the reality for every man and woman and child. God is watching what you are doing. There is something deep within all of us that echoes this truth. We will all face a day of reckoning when we will give an account of what we did 
and the life we lived. And we look forward to this, not so much for ourselves, but when we see evil in the world, when we are personally victimized by some evil, a sense of justice rises up within us. We hope and we long for that day of reckoning. Reminds me of the funeral home in South Carolina that opened up a coffee bar in their establishment. They installed a fireplace and a television and some comfortable pieces of furniture. And then they offered Wi-Fi and Starbucks coffee. A local news outlet ran a contest to pick a name for the funeral home's coffee corner. Here are some of the honorable mentions. The Grim Roaster. The Last Cup. Decoffinated. I like this one. Purgatory. Be nice knowing you. And see you latte. But here were the top two entries. Coming in second. Still Above Grounds Cafe. And then the grand prize went to Time to Meet Your Mocha. I like that winning name. For it is exactly what the Bible teaches us about life after death. Death is the time when everyone meets their maker. Hebrews 9 verse 27 tells us, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this... The judgment. God's judgment is a reality for every single human. We are created beings. That means that our lives come with purpose and with intention. Trust me, one day we will answer to our Creator. Of course, this is not how our modern world wants it to work. Actress Kate Bosworth starred in a recent movie, 90 Minutes in Heaven. The film was directed by her husband, Michael Polish. It's about a pastor's death and his supposed visit to heaven. Of course, not much in the movie resembles the Bible's description of the place. I mean, the movie has no king, no white horse, no throne. No one, nowhere in the movie does it mention even heaven's chief attraction, which is Jesus Christ. But when asked, the couple did say that the movie caused them to think a lot about heaven. In fact, Michael commented, Heaven means different things to different people. I would like my heaven to have a little more grass, maybe a white picket fence, maybe some animals. Kate had similar thoughts. I would love to have Mike waiting for me or me waiting for Mike with our dogs running around. That's heaven. Whatever heaven is for each individual, that would certainly be it for me. Hey, what do we expect? A world that sees morality and truth as nothing but relative up to each person to decide and to define their own morality. Now we have a relative view of the afterlife. People are deciding their own heaven. Western civilization has come a long way from Dante's vision of heaven and hell or Jonathan Edwards' sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Amazingly, heaven is no longer defined by biblical definitions and descriptions. In most minds, heaven has been secularized. People think it's a design your own. The idea that God is watching what you are doing is no longer a popular concept, but it remains the truth. A judgment day is coming for each of us. 
after you and I die, we'll have to answer to the God and Savior who created us. And the Bible sets out four different judgments. God judges sin and societies and sinners and service. First is the judgment of sin. On Calvary's cross, Jesus endured our punishment and paid our penalty. For the believer, sin was judged on the cross. Faith in Jesus now puts an end to all our sin. For folks in Christ, the cross is sin's final judgment. The Christian is now forgiven. His or her sins have been forgotten. Second is the judgment of societies. For throughout history, God has acted to bring justice and to punish evil. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah, the exodus from Egypt, the fall of Babylon, the crumbling of Rome, the defeat of the Nazis, the collapse of communism have all been acts of God. Throughout history, the providence of God has intervened at times and in ways to bring judgment. And this should concern America. Hey, we have condoned the killing of the unborn. We have redefined God's terms for marriage. Don't think we can escape God's judgment. Joel chapter 2 foresees the ultimate judgment of societies in Jerusalem's Kidron Valley. It is the valley of decision, as Joel calls it. Matthew 25 tells us that God has the final say on nations. The third judgment is the judgment of sinners. Revelation 20 speaks of an ominous day, a day yet future at the end of the age, when everyone who's ever lived will stand before the great white throne of God. They'll give an account of the deeds that they've done on earth. Now, as Christians, breathe easy. This is the judgment we'll escape. Our sin was judged on the cross of Christ by what Jesus did. But if you reject Jesus... You'll be judged by the deeds you've done. This is the judgment no one wants. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thus, our choice is to either fall on God's mercy now or stand on our own merits then. <laughs> I choose mercy. There is a judgment of sin and of societies and of sinners, but there is also the judgment of service. And this is the judgment the Christian won't escape. For as well as being a child of God, you and I are also God's fellow workers. You have a role to play in what God is building in the world today. The foundation, of course, is Jesus. But each of us is adding to the construction. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, Let each one take heed how he builds. Our work is being inspected by the master builder, Jesus. Christians will be judged by what they've done in service for their Lord. Yet here in Ezekiel, the prophet discusses how all these judgments get carried out. When and why are separate issues covered in other places. But Ezekiel 18 deals with the how we're judged. And here's what we learn in a nutshell. What is current is what counts. Twice in this book, in the book of Ezekiel, shows you God's, the importance God places on it. Twice in this book, here in chapter 18 and later in chapter 33, the prophet tells us that all God's judgments 
are based on our current present state. In other words, when God judges us, He looks at what's trending. Now, if you don't have a grasp of internet jargon and aren't familiar with the blogosphere, you might not understand this term, trending. It refers to the trendy pic or photo or video. What's trending is what's happening on the web, what's getting the most hits at any given moment. And it varies sharply from day to day, even from hour to hour. Facebook and YouTube and Google, as well as most news-gathering websites, all have a What's Trending page. The idea is to keep us up to date, to keep us current on the news. And yet realize this is what God looks at when He judges a person. The Lord analyzes what is trending in my life. Not where I was yesterday, not where I hope to be tomorrow. It's not my past history or my future intentions that capture God's attention. It's where I am right now. God is concerned with my current position, my present trajectory, what's trending in my heart. This is the case regardless of what judgment we're talking about, whether God is examining the legitimacy of our faith or whether He's looking at the sincerity of my service or whether He's scrutinizing a nation or whether He's looking at a person without Christ and exposing their deeds, either good or bad. As we learn in our text, How God judges us is essentially the same. He analyzes a person's current condition, that which is trending in that person's heart. What I want to do this morning is to go back through our passage verse by verse and take a closer look. Verse 21 begins, But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Now Ezekiel starts out with a beautiful example of God's mercy and grace. Envisioned is a man who's racked up a long list of sins. He's got a rap sheet a mile long. But if that man turns from all his sins and throws himself on the mercies of God and is willing to let God take over his life and make the changes God desires, then God will forgive him fully and freely. None of his transgressions shall be remembered. It reminds me of the thief on the cross. You remember Luke referred to him as a criminal. The Greek term means one who uses violence to rob openly. This wasn't a white-collar criminal being punished for a case of credit card theft. This was a bandit, a desperado, someone who specialized in murder and mayhem. He was a thief who terrorized people, held them up at gunpoint. This was an evil dude. Yet when he asked Jesus for mercy, Jesus granted him mercy. This is what God does. That very day, the thief joined Jesus in paradise. God is rich in mercy, and he makes it readily available to everyone who humbles themselves and who asks. There's a legend from the Middle Ages. A woman was expelled from heaven. She was told 
that she would be allowed back only after she had brought God the thing that he valued most. Well, first she returned with drops of a martyr's blood. But that didn't gain her readmittance. Then she came with some coins from a widow's offering and a tattered Bible from which a faithful pastor preached and even the dust off the shoes of a missionary who'd gone to a distant land. But none of these items got her readmitted. Then one day she was watching a little boy play by a lake when an older man rode up on horseback. After observing the boy, the man thought of his own childhood innocence. And that's when he saw his face, his reflection in the water. He saw his sad, hardened, weathered face looking back at him from the surface of the lake. The man was overcome by what sin had done to him. And in that moment, he wept tears of repentance. Well, the woman quickly scooped up a few of those tears and took them to heaven where she was received joyfully back into the presence of God. God treasured the tears of a repentant heart. And friends, He still does. When we turn from our sin, God takes us in. Because God's forgiveness was paid in full, and His grace is so great, it sent Jesus to the cross, no one is beyond the hope of redemption and restoration. Unlike car crashes, God never totals out a life. He never says it can't be repaired. At least when it comes to our repentance, what Yogi Berra said was true. It ain't over till it's over. As long as a person has breath to breathe, they can turn to God and live. God is always willing to forgive. That's Ezekiel's point in verse 23. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? And not that he should turn from his ways and live. God is always willing and ready to forgive. He never takes pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. God is not some vindictive egomaniac who gets his jollies from watching folks fry in hell. God loves people, all people, even the slimiest and the grimiest. He pleads for us to turn from evil and live. In the New Testament, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 echoes Ezekiel and reveals God's heart. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. An old rabbi was once told the story, or told the story of the celebration that occurred in heaven when God divided the Red Sea and delivered the Hebrews out of the hands of the Egyptian army. The sea parted for the Hebrews to walk across on dry ground. But when the Egyptian army chased them, God released the standing water and Egypt drowned. When it happened, heaven erupted with joy. Israel was victorious. Angels began to dance and cheer. That's when one of the angels asked his supervisor, Michael, he said, where is God? Why isn't he here celebrating with us? Michael the archangel replied, God is off by himself weeping. You see, the Hebrew people were saved, but thousands of Egyptians drowned today. When the wicked die, God takes no pleasure in their death. He grieves when anyone dies in their sins. And then Ezekiel, he proposes another scenario. 
He says, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. Now just as a sinful person can change, So can a righteous person. People start out following God. Then later they digress into rebellion. And as a consequence, they suffer God's punishment. It's like a neglectful airplane pilot who falls asleep at the controls and crash lands the plane. When the pilot gets judged, he can't just offer the excuse, at least I had a good takeoff. A pilot is judged on his landings not his takeoffs. And so is a Christian. A real faith is a faith that continues. It's a continuing faith. Let's say, as a young man, you followed God. You lived your life for Jesus. You trusted in Him. But life didn't turn out the way you'd hoped. You lost a loved one, perhaps, or maybe your business soured. Dreams died before they were realized. With all your love and service and devotion to God, you thought He owed you. You'd scratched God's back, and now He needed to scratch yours. And when He didn't, or at least in the way you'd hoped, you turned your back on Him. You renounced your faith in Christ. Hey, it's not an uncommon scenario. Not because God isn't trustworthy, but because often people They trust Him for stuff He never promised. They think God owes them life, liberty, and an abundance of happiness. Not so. God does love us, and He wants to bless us. But He doesn't shelter us from hardship. Instead, He uses the tough stuff to grow us. People shoot their faith in the foot with erroneous expectations. They they pray for what God never agreed to grant. Then they get upset when God doesn't supply. So when a person renounces their faith and becomes a skeptic, how then does God judge them? Well, this is Ezekiel's point. God looks at the current state of that person's heart. Not their former service. Not what's been, but what's trending in that person's life. Listen carefully. Say you walked the aisle when you were 10 years old and you prayed the sinner's prayer. Then you walked away from the Lord and you've been walking away from Him for the last 35 years. You're foolish if you assume that you are right with God today. You can't ignore God for a lifetime, live in rebellion, then expect Him to determine your destiny based on a 35-year-old commitment you haven't attended to for 35 years. God looks at what's trending not what was. And likewise, say you spent the last 50 years raising hell and bucking God, but today you confess your sin and sincerely repent. God will forgive you fully. Again, it is what is current that counts. If you're married, you know how this works. Real trust is current trust. Real love is current love. It doesn't matter how good my marriage was 20 years ago. The verdict is still out today. Do I love my wife today? 
A wife isn't going to be satisfied if her husband's love isn't current and up to date. If my love is nothing more than fumes from yesterday's devotion, it's not real love. My wife cares about the current state of our relationship. And so what if yesterday my marriage was awful? If we're still breathing, there's hope for change. What couple doesn't want a better marriage today? See, here's Ezekiel's point. Yesterday's experiences don't matter in today's evaluation. What if you and I were best friends 30 years ago, but out of the blue you call me on the phone and you ask me for a job recommendation? I could speak to what you were 30 years ago, but until we catch up, until I learn the current condition of your life and your character, how can I give you a hearty endorsement? And this is how God chooses to judge us. It's what's fresh. Meat that's frozen and stuck in the back of the refrigerator, it's not going to do you any good for dinner tonight. It can't be cooked. It's frozen. Bread that's stale can't be eaten. Both have to be fresh. And this is how God looks at our devotion. What counts is what's current. Now, yesterday's experiences are important to us in the sense that they do create a momentum, either backwards or forwards, as I walk with God and add to my faith what makes it grow, virtue and knowledge and perseverance and kindness and love, it makes my current faith stronger. Whereas if I flirt with sin and compromise with the world, my faith starts trending weaker and weaker. What I do today does create a momentum, but God's, current, God's evaluation of my life is on my current condition, not what I did previous. What I did years ago, even yesterday, is of no value today if it doesn't translate into a current faith. And the years you spend in rebellion to God, though those years were wasted, though they may have worn you down, it still doesn't mean you can't turn around your destiny today. God cares about the current attitude of our hearts. In 1966, the best pitcher in baseball was Sandy Koufax. It was his 12th season in the big leagues. His first eight years were pretty mediocre. But 1966 was the last of four seasons where Koufax dominated hitters the way very few pitchers have before or since. In fact, when Koufax retired that same year, he was hailed the greatest pitcher of all time. Someone nicknamed him the left arm of God. No one cared about his first eight years of mediocrity. It was those last four years of excellence, what was current, that folks remembered when he retired. Whereas two years later, in 1968, another pitcher had the best season of any pitcher for 50 years. Denny McLean of the Tigers won 31 games that season. He had a 1.96 ERA, and he was named the American League MVP. But when McLean retired in 1972, few people recalled the success that he had achieved a few years earlier. For in his last four seasons... He played for five different teams. He had 18 victories, 36 losses. He battled alcohol and had a gambling addiction. He ended up going to jail. 
Though his overall statistics were comparable to Koufax, because of the unsavory status at the time of his exit from the game, McLean was shunned. Koufax is in the Hall of Fame. McLean is in the Hall of Shame. And this is more than just a tale of two athletes. It illustrates Ezekiel's point. It's not how you start that matters. It's not even your overall statistics. It's where you stand at the moment of judgment. In the case of Koufax and McLean, it's when history renders its verdict. For us, when history renders its verdict is where we stand today. For today could be the day God decides it's time to judge us. One truth is for certain. When that day does come, a career full of godliness can't make up for a closing season of indiscretion. Nor will a lifetime of evil stop God from being gracious if you repent at the end. In God's eyes, what is current is what counts. This is why a big part of the Christian life is endurance, perseverance. I call it stick to itness. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul spoke of the Christian life as a race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As in any race, the goal is to finish. Hey, nobody ever won a race who didn't finish. And this is true in the Christian life. You can get off to a quick start, run well for three quarters of the race. But if you tire, if you give up and drop out, you failed. And this applies to us spiritually. Colossians 1 verse 23 tells us that in Christ, you've been reconciled. You're considered blameless. But then he adds, if indeed you continue in the faith, Grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Faith is the baton that has to cross the finish line. If it's dropped somewhere along the track, you forfeit. As Paul said, I kept the faith. Once my dad and I, we were playing golf. I'll never forget the occasion. We were on the ninth tee box at Mystery Valley Golf Course. All of a sudden, we were joined by another golfer, a man about my dad's age. They were both talking to each other. All of a sudden, the man asked Dad, he said, Well, what do your two sons do for a living? Dad replied, They're both pastors. Well, the man was ecstatic. He says, Wow, I bet you're proud of them. And I'll never forget my dad's reply. He said it loud enough for me to hear. He said, So far. (laughs) And this is Ezekiel's message to us. What you are is what you are so far, right now. You're righteous if you trust Jesus today. If you deny your faith or throw it away, yesterday's faith can't compensate for what you lack right now. The faith that matters is today's faith. Verse 25 goes on and says, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, Is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? Oh, at the time, the Hebrews around Ezekiel, they were in the midst of God's judgment. They were being punished for their idolatry. 
And there from Babylon, they were moaning and groaning and complaining that God had been unfair to them. They were a bunch of crybabies. It's interesting, Wade Bradshaw, he pastors a church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Recently, Bradshaw's observations about modern culture were quoted in the Washington Times. He made this comment. It used to be skeptics of Christianity would ask, is there a God? But now these same critics say, what I know about God, I don't like. You see, people have gone from questioning God to now just not liking Him. This was the case in Ezekiel's day. The people had become arrogant. Because the Almighty God doesn't ascribe to our political correctness, because God says that there are certain behaviors that we enjoy that are actually wrong and bad for us, because God dares to make His own rules without consulting us, we think God is unfair? Are you kidding me? People today are good at what I call buck and duck. They either buck or defy God's authority, or they duck or dodge His authority, or try to. But if you don't trust God enough to do life His way, how can He prove Himself to you? How can He win your allegiance? Who's being unfair here? Not God, but us. All our bucking and ducking of God brings consequences on us that we can't blame on someone else. We're responsible to God for the decisions that we make. Ezekiel writes in verse 26, When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. In other words, he reaps the fruit of his own choice. He's getting what he's signed up for. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Again, one of the ways you and I were made in God's image is our ability to choose. Of all his creation, God gave humans the ability to make moral choices. Unlike plants, unlike animals, man is a self-determinate being. We are the captain of our own destiny. You know, today we live in an era of genetic engineering and sophisticated biochemistry. And people today are often told that their destiny is irrevocable. That nobody can escape their genetic makeup. We're nothing but a mutation of inherited genes. I was born this way is the familiar refrain. Even if it's a deviance that God forbids, even if it's damaging to our own lives, we're encouraged to accept it. Oh, don't fight it. But this is not what God says about us. We were created in God's image and we were given a free will. We don't have to be enslaved by inbred tendencies or past programming. With God's help, we can break the chain. Notice verse 29 tells us, Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? 
Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't relish judging anyone. It's God's will for us all to follow Him. Perhaps you're an alcoholic from a long line of alcoholics. Maybe you have a same-sex attraction that you've had for as long as you can remember. God's will and His ways still apply to you. You can change. You might feel that you're trapped. You might feel that you've been boxed into this destructive lifestyle. You feel powerless to escape. But at the very core of your personality, you can be something different than you were before. You can be. You can be the person that God has always intended you to be. Ezekiel encourages us in verse 31. Get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. See, the Bible teaches that we're all born in sin. Hey, we're all born warped in some way. We're all a little bit twisted. But we can be born again. You can get yourself a new heart. Ezekiel says in chapter 26, God takes, chapter 36, God takes out our heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is one that's sensitive to God. Insensitive to other people. Did you know that one square inch of human flesh or skin, in that one square inch, there are 19,500 nerve endings, along with thousands of sensor cells that measure heat and cold and pain and touch. Your flesh is amazingly sensitive. And this is the kind of heart that God wants to give us. A heart that's sensitive to His concerns and to other people. You know, my garage is full of rags. They absorb spills. They wipe off sweat. They add grip when you're trying to twist something. You know, I love rags. I mean, no matter the job, you know, rag comes in handy. My wife wants to throw a shirt away. No, no, that makes great rags. But yesterday, yesterday I was out in the garage, and guess what? I found this rag. Here's the problem with this rag. It's just a little hard, a little stiff, is it not? It's a little crusty. And when a rag stiffens like this, it becomes useless. You want a rag to be soft and supple. And this is how God wants a heart. In fact, he promises to replace stiff hearts with soft hearts. He's willing to work this miracle in us to make us absorbent again, to make us supple and pliable and moldable. And I love how emphatic God is. He knows this is what we desperately need. Not self-help or behavior modification or positive thinking or some vague meditation. God shouts it out. Get yourselves a new heart. In a new spirit, God wants to change us from the inside out. 
And the miracle of the new heart is ours for the getting, friends. Just ask. Ezekiel closes the chapter in verse 32. Quotes God again. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Once there was a burglar who was casing a house that he intended to rob. One morning he saw this family loading suitcases into their car. It was obvious they were leaving town that day. So that night he broke into the house. He came in through a window in the basement. It was dark. And he was trying to find the light switch when suddenly he heard a voice. Shame on you. I see you and Jesus sees you. He thought someone else was in the house. Again, the voice shouted, shame on you. I see you and Jesus sees you. Well, finally, he got to the light switch. When he turned it on, he looked over and there was a parrot in a cage. This time, the bird squawked again, shame on you. I see you and Jesus sees you. Well, this time, the burglar just laughed at the helpless parrot. That's until he turned to go upstairs and there at the door to the basement was this large, ferocious Doberman. That's when the parrot shouted, Sick him, Jesus! <laughs> That's an old joke. You've probably heard it before. Which brings me back to my opening thought. As the old Jewish man said, Jesus is watching what you're doing. There will be a judgment for all of us. Hopefully you've been to the cross. Your sins have been covered with the blood of Jesus. You won't be judged according to your deeds, but by faith. Yet there is still a judgment for all of us. Every Christian will appear at the judgment seat of Christ. The works we've done for God will be tested for quality, for our motive behind them. We'll be rewarded accordingly. And here's how we'll be judged. It is the current state that counts. Is your faith in Jesus up to date? Is your love for Jesus trending in your life? Hopefully, you're not trying to ride out the future on the victories from the past. That strategy gets a person in trouble with God. And here's a glorious truth. If you're not current, you can get current today, this morning. You can start trending towards God right now. You can get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. You can rededicate your life to Jesus today. You can renew your faith and trust in Him. With God, what is current is what counts.